I finished the baptism and I heard laughter. And I thought, well, that's unlike Pastor Pine to crack a joke. <laughs> and then Lois said, my microphone was still on and you heard me worshiping. I was just chortling and, and rejoicing and <laughs> baptizing those five little guys and thinking about, I told them that how you guys were going to send them to the mission field and you were going to send them to camp and you were going to teach them and you were going to awana them and everything. Go to their softball games and it's kind of cool to be in a church like this. I, I'm thrilled with it. I got to say something, you know, I'm kind of my mind, I might as well just get it off my chest. I said something this morning I wish I could take back. And so let's just talk about that real quick. I was joking a little bit about the full moon. Do you remember that piece? And I said, that's why we don't want to have deacons meetings during a full moon. And, and I wish I hadn't said that, because one of the things I am devoted to is just our fellowship that we enjoy with the deacons. They're good men, and, and we have not had a single trouble. And I don't want to leave you with the impression. I love my wife, and I like to spar and banter, and, and I, I probably can't even begin to apologize to her for all the uh, extemporaneous comments I've made. But uh, one thing here is that I have, uh, we're going on our fourth year, we're in our fourth year, and every time I drive home from a deacon's meeting in this church, is just a happy, joyful, good thing, every one of them. And so I, I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. Probably you didn't get the wrong impression, but, but I, that was just like not a, good, not a good place for humor. So I probably should say this on Sunday morning, you know, when I, but... Uh, the other thing is that was on my brain. Um, this past week I had the privilege of going to Grand Rapids and speaking in the college chapel where my kids, two of them are students, and, and uh, doing a little, having a good day over that way. And uh, I spent some time in Grand Rapids when I was a boy. Um, as you know, my dad was in seminary there, and I probably mentioned that. But, so there, I can drive around Grand Rapids, I can see houses where I used to live, and I can see my first you know, like where I went to school and where I got my first ball glove. I'm always boring my kids by pointing out where I got my first ball glove at there on 28th Street at the Myers. Uh, and so whenever I go by there, I don't have to say anything. They always say, hey, isn't that where you got your first ball glove? And I'm like, yeah. And, uh, but it's interesting because uh, if you're a literary type uh, or if you, you, know, you like reading or maybe you, I could put it this way, if you're into stories, you like a, a really good film, there are themes that you often see in film or themes you see in good stories, themes you see in literature. And one of those themes is the return theme. You're going back to where you were raised or you're going back to that first apartment uh, where you lived after you were married. Uh, I always love the smell of new carpet. New carpet smell reminds me of the apartment that we lived in when we first got married. And for Lois, it makes her throw up. But for me, I'm just kidding. Now, I'll apologize next week for saying that, you know. No, but anyway, that, that just brings things back. That return theme is a big theme in literature. It's a powerful literary theme. It's a powerful thing in, in, in film. One of my favorite books, I don't recommend everything about it, but one of my favorite books is this book by Sheldon Van Auken, A Severe Mercy. And um, he uses this literary device, if you will. He uses this literary theme. In the, in the beginning of the book, you know, you often will read the first chapter, skip the prologue. You wouldn't want to do that with this book because the prologue is so beautifully written. I'll read you a little piece of it here uh, to give you a touch of, 
of uh, how he's going back to his childhood home many years after he left, and he's remembering things growing up, but he's also remembering the time he had there with his young lover just before they were married. He's going back now to see it again, but she's dead, and so he's remembering. The country road stretched ahead, white in the moonlight and deserted. A single car, an MGTD two-seater, was creeping along with its lights off and its top down. The driver looked intently at every tree and contour. The few houses were dark and silent, for it was long past midnight. The moon was full, high in the dome of heaven, and the June air was mild, carrying the scent of flowers and growing things. Ahead on the night right appeared a white board fence set back away from the road, the long X's formed by the diagonal boards running parallel to the road and disappearing over a low hill. A car came to a momentary halt, then moved on a few yards and crept off the road beneath a big oak. The driver uncoiled his long frame and climbed out. The night was very still. Only the faintest rustle of leaves above him betrayed some stir in the air. And somewhere in the distance, a lonesome dog barked in an impatient and leisurely way. The traveler, a tall man in his late thirties, stood looking up into the branches of the oak, and then he began to walk with an easy stride along the road with the white fence on his right, and behind it he could see the old cherry tree. He remembered suddenly the sharp sweetness of sun-warmed cherries and birds chirping crossly at a boy in their tree. A few hundred yards further on over the hill, he came to massive stone gateposts, the gates of Glen Merle. A brief smile touched his lips as he looked at the left-hand gatepost and remembered his small brother on top of it. It was easy to climb from the fence, his brother waving frantically and unnecessarily at the fire engine that had come to put out a minor fire in the servants' room. Between the gateposts, the driveway lay white and still in the moonlight, running straight to where it curved down a hill into the trees of the park. The house itself, further up the hill, was hidden. He stood there in stillness, looking. A tiny breeze touched his face like a brief caress, he closed his eyes for a second or two, fancying as always, it was, as always that it was she and the wind. Davy, he murmured, dearling, and then he walked through the gates, the gravel crunching where he trod. On either side of the broad, beyond the poplars that began the avenue lay the gate meadow where the wild strawberries grew. An image leaped into his mind of a sunny white tablecloth and a blue-white bowl heaped with small, exquisite, exquisite red strawberries and flaky shortcake and a thick yellow Jersey cream from nearby Glen Merle Farm. He swallowed and walked on. Now you want to read the book, don't you? That's because it's a powerful thing to go back and to remember things. And that is exactly what happens in one of the most beautiful and the most powerful and the most poignant books of the Bible, the 13 chapters that we call the book of Nehemiah, uses the same literary theme, he's going back. In this case, he's going back because he has a great burden that he's heard about. Someone has clarified to him a great burden, and he has this passion in his heart that causes him to fast and pray. And he doesn't just go back, he goes back to make things right. It's a beautiful story. It is the book of of Nehemiah. Malachi, as you know, in our arrangement of the English Bible, is the last book in the Old Testament. But the prophet Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. What you need to realize when you study Nehemiah is we've come to the end of Old Testament history when we get to the book of Nehemiah. 
So we've gone through the whole history then of Israel in the Old Testament. When we get to the book of Nehemiah, this is it. Now we're going to study the poetic literature of the Bible and the prophetic literature of the Bible. But the poetic literature and the prophetic literature of the Old Testament tuck, in terms of chronology, they tuck into these historic books. So we're coming here to the end of Old Testament history. The main events of the book of Nehemiah cover about 15 years, and it's just full of action and interest. The book of Nehemiah, again, is where the Old Testament history ends. And the key verses might be chapter 6 and verses 15 and 16, because Nehemiah is particularly burdened that he's gotten word that the gates, that the, that the walls are torn down of Jerusalem, and that the gates are burned with fire. And this breaks his heart. So he leads... He goes back under the direction of God and under the, author, under the uh, uh, allowance of the authorities over him. He goes back to inspire people to rebuild the walls, and everybody says it can't be done. It's impossible. But listen to what it says in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul. A 50, in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things, they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. So this is an inspiring story of leadership. i got God stirring up leadership in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, with God's help and the help of others that he inspired, accomplishing something so significant that it seemed miraculous to people around them. In chapter 8, you have another scene, which is a beautiful scene of the Bible. It's one of the critical, beautiful scenes of the Bible where you have the people gathering together and, and calling in Ezra, and they're, they're reading the law of God, and they're gathering the people together in Nehemiah chapter 8. This would be a key verse as well, perhaps verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. This was a key and a critical thing. In the, in the book of Nehemiah are some key doctrines, and I'm going to tell you four of them that you see a lot throughout the Bible, and especially like in the book of Nehemiah. Covenant is a big deal in all of the Bible. Covenants, they're, 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 God wants to get people into promises with himself. He makes covenants with people. He wants people to keep covenants. And he respects when people make covenants with one another. He always has, and I believe he always will. And this is germane to our time because I think frequently modern people say, hey, I'll hang out with you. We'll have an informal relationship, but I don't want to be in a covenant with you. Have you noticed that? That's the kind of the... That's the kind of the way it is today. People say, yeah, well, you know, I want to kind of keep this kind of loose. I don't want to make any binding promises. I don't want to make any vows. I don't want to sign anything. Well, it's interesting because this is a theme here in the book of Nehemiah. I think it's a theme in the Bible. Another theme that you see here, you've seen it in other books too, is the importance that people placed on worship and the importance that God placed on worship. So you have the theme of the covenant and you have the theme of worship. You have the theme of sanctification. God wants his people to be holy. Two things are happening in this book. One of them is they're going back to rebuild the walls under Nehemiah's leadership. But the other thing, the second half of the book is, so there's the rebuilding of the walls, but there's a revival among God's people and they always work together. When God is really giving somebody a project that he wants them to do, it always involves spiritual revival. Bible too. It's never just like nuts and bolts. 
And it's never just ethereal, pie-in-the-sky spirituality. It's both together. You're doing something for God, but you aren't thinking to do anything for God without spiritual renewal. And you see both of those in the book. And then you see, like you see in all of the Bible, the providence of God, or you could call the sovereignty of God, how God is in control of everything, and His hand is in everything. And I think the, the, the older you get in the Lord, and the more you know Him, and the more you read His Word, the more the sovereignty of God is a comfort to you just to see the power of God in the Bible. Let me give you just a flyover here of the book of Nehemiah. This isn't advancing. What have I done? Done something terrible and it won't work. Well, I'll walk you through this next When you kind of get that going, you can show them. There's two sections. Section number one is chapters one through seven. And the focus in chapters one through seven, well, there it is, is the focus is on rebuilding. Thank you, Nathan. Nathan Calvis. Good job. Uh, focus on rebuilding the wall. And there you have it. You know, obviously the, the book begins, chapter 1, where Nehemiah is given word that the walls have, have been torn down and that the gates are burned with fire. His heart is broken. He weeps. He fasts. He mourns. He prays. And he gets permission to do something about it. He's a man's man. Real interesting story. And so then he goes into, the, into this. In chapters 1 and 2, you have a vision and planning for rebuilding. Just kind of a pattern. You see this really in the Bible. Um, God gives a man a vision, and the man, he makes plans. And then chapters 3 through 6, you have the actual rebuilding of the wall. And you have, during this time, conflict from without. People are always badgering him from the outside. And you have kind of internal conflict as well. And that's in, covered in chapters 3 through 6 as you read the book of Nehemiah. Real interesting reading if you haven't already read it. In chapter 7, you have a list of those who return, individuals. That's going to come into play later, and we'll talk about it. And you guys have noticed that you've been going to these... You've been attending these messages that go through the Old Testament. You know how often God has lists of people, individual names in the Bible. The significance to that. The second section then of Nehemiah from chapter 8 to the end in chapter 13, the focus is on spiritual renewal. So again, chapters 1 through 7, you have the focus on rebuilding the wall. And chapters 8 through 13, you have the focus on spiritual renewal among the people. Now that's kind of a nice, sweet-sounding, fancy way of saying it, but I mean, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, clean house. It's actually pretty cool stuff. It would make a good movie, and it would have a bit of a rating, because um, it isn't just like happy, like kindergarten kinds of things. The man cleans house. This is kind of fun. You can tell I'm looking forward to talking about that. Chapter 8, the law is read and explained. We mentioned that already. Chapters 9 and 10, you have a covenant renewal ceremony. People are going back, reminding themselves of the covenant, renewing the covenant. And you have Nehemiah and the leaders actually actually encouraging people to make specific vows before God and binding themselves to one another and to God in promises. It's pretty serious stuff. Nehemiah is a hardcore man's man, quite a leader. Can you, you know, if you read the book, you've got to admire him. And I think that's got to be what God, the Holy Spirit, intended in putting this book in here and giving us this kind of hero story. I think he wanted us to see Nehemiah as an example. Chapters 11 and 12, you see the resettling of Jerusalem. And then you have the reforms. And this is where it kind of gets really colorful. In chapter 13, you have the reforms. It's really kind of a series of things that people are doing wrong and what Nehemiah does about it. A lot of fun to read. And, and there you have it. Now, you have a universal pattern that I notice in, in, in this book, and it's in, I think, almost every work I've ever studied or read about in God's work. You have a specific project that will honor the Lord that God stirs up in the heart of a man or woman. <clears throat> and, and there, there is female leadership. We know this. There is female leadership. There are places of female leadership. National leadership, church leadership is male. That's what the scriptures teach. 
We're talking about like overall church leadership is male. So often I'm going to say things like about men, but we, we obviously know, for instance, there are places where women have leadership. There are places where women have authority. The scriptures teach about that, and those are appropriate and right. And so I'm not ignoring those kinds of things. But we always want to keep coming back. Ladies, if, it, if it's helpful to you, and you've kind of drunk of the spirit of the age, I hope none of you have done that, and the feminist thing is kind of, you've been poisoned by that, then let me just kind of say it like this. What doesn't every woman in the world want a man, the men in her life, to take responsibility for the stuff they're supposed to take responsibility for? Right? My wife will tell you, that big bubble in the linoleum is my responsibility. She doesn't want to have to do that. She's like, when are you going to fix the bubble in the linoleum? You know, that's my responsibility. To, the, the, uh, every, every once in a while, something will be going on with one of the kids, and I'll look at her and I'll go, are you going to do something about that? She's like, you're the man. She did that a few hours ago, as a matter of fact. We kind of were having a little fun. She's like, you're the man. Wouldn't you like to know the rest of that story? But I can't. I must hasten on. So uh, you see what I'm saying? Here you have this. And so sometimes when I say man, I'm, I'm talking about let's, you know, we understand there are, leader, there are opportunities for men, women, boys, and girls to lead always. That is true. And that's important. And that's not to be, we, we don't want to be a part of the kind of people that run women down and beat women down and don't appreciate or honor women. That's not right. We don't appreciate their intelligence or we don't appreciate their skill or ability or the importance of us. We don't want to be that kind of person that's not biblical or right. But men need to be men and they need to take leadership when they're supposed to take leadership. Nehemiah is just such a great example of that. So here you have God stirring up a man. He's stirring up a man with a burden that breaks his heart, that makes him want to weep and pray and fast and confess. And then he's giving him specific ideas about how he can kind of build a team and what he can do in order to address that. And it's not outside this context that he realizes a piece of this is going to have to be spiritual renewal. He's got to get people back in the Word of God. He's got to get people to humble themselves and confess their sin. He's got to get people to pray, and he's got to get people to work, working and praying. It's just a, it's, and it's the way, that's just the way it is. You see these three things, vision for a good work, spiritual renewal, and godly leadership. And I can't help but think of the local church because that's what we're doing here. And that would be true in this local church and in all local churches. There should be a vision for a good work, a concrete vision of something that breaks the heart of God, that God would have put upon our heart to address, for example, Thousands of people who live all around here who do not yet know the Lord. Their little boys are not going to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, get sent to camp, get loved on and taught and kept away from the horrors of this world because they don't know the Lord, but we know the Lord. That should stir our hearts. We should have a plan for that. And it, we should like die trying. And we should, we, should, we should think, God, what is it you would have us as a church do about that? And that's the way it ought to be. So we should have an evangelistic heart. We should have men, men, women, stand up, make plans. So they have these plans, but they recognize that spiritual renewal has got to be a part of that. We don't, we're not really trying to innovate or come up with kind of cool, fancy things. We know that the Word of God is going to be a part of that. We know that confession of sin is going to be a part of that. We know that prayer is going to be a part of that. We know that old-fashioned witnessing to people who don't know the Lord is going to be a part of that. That's just stuff the same way Nehemiah knew that. He went, he went to prayer. He went to confession. Now I'm repeating myself. 
And, and, and it has to be a team. And you see this too. I, I, I every once in a while, I, I have this grand idea. And I remember one, one day we, we had a pastor on our pastoral staff, and he was uh, older and watching his, his money because of his retirement. And he said he was going to pay to have a new roof put on his house. And I'm like, no, let's not do that. We got men that can put a new roof on your house. It's like, not me, but there are guys that know, I know how to take a roof off. I could put a roof on, but you wouldn't like it. It would be crooked and leaky, but I could take a roof off. I could inspire. So I said, hey, I'll, we'll take the roof off, and we'll get the young men to take the roof off. Chuck, were you part of this? You probably were. Yeah. <laughs> I said, we'll get the young men to take the roof off, and then we'll take the skilled laborers in the afternoon and put the roof back on, which is a great idea, except the thunderstorm hit immediately as soon as the roof was off, and someone who didn't really have the gift of administration, had not made a provision for like having enough tarps to cover up the roof. And so we had another project to fix his garage when it was ruined and all the drywall just was destroyed. Moral of the story is, if you want to put a a roof on somebody's house, don't call me. I'm not going to be that good at it. I mean, I'll be there to give like, you know, esprit de corps, and I'll be there to get the donuts and hustle around you, tell me what to do, I'll be a gopher. but, But I had in my heart this idea. There was a time in our church I had... An idea. We had a family in our church, and they had boys with muscular dystrophy, and it broke my heart. And they had a little house, a little farmhouse, and I thought, they ought to have more room for those guys. I, I had an idea. I didn't know how to do that. I started talking about it. Guys in the church were like almost, you know, they were nice to me because I was a pastor, but it was like they were almost making fun of me. They're like, yeah, you don't think, I don't think you realize that means showers, and it means big showers, and it means big hallways, and it means like a lot of... And you know what happened, though? Other men that were gifted men stepped in there, and they caught that vision, and they basically said to me, Pastor, you do what you do. Just stay out of our way. Drop in every once in a while and pray, and we're going to make this happen, and make it happen, they did. It was the coolest thing. All I really had was the initial kind of idea, and it was a lame idea, but when the brains got on it, the guys that knew what they were doing, they built that addition for that family, and it stands there today, upstairs, down, big charts, to help that family. Nehemiah, in a much bigger way, in a much more epic way, with the people of God, is used by God to have a vision and to have some direction, some leadership, and to inspire other people to go with him. And and along with that, they have this revival. And in his life, you see aspects of godly leadership. So let's take a few minutes before we go home tonight, and let me show you this. I borrowed this stuff. This is modified by me, but it's mostly material by a pastor named Mark Dever. I want to make sure you know that. Eight different things he says are part of a godly leader's life, and you see this in the book of Nehemiah. A godly leader prays. I already said this. You can see this if you read Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah 2, other parts. Nehemiah is always praying. Let's remember this, Evangel Baptist Church. Let's remember this. We have a work to do. We have people to reach. We have kids to raise for the Lord. We have people that need to be encouraged. Let's remember this. A big part of this needs to be prayer. Godly people are people who pray. Let's remember that. Nehemiah was the leader who prayed. I like this, and I already said it. Nehemiah was the leader who acted. He didn't just talk. He didn't just pray. But he took action. You see, this is so cool. When you look through here, you see that he prayed to the God of heaven but he did stuff. There is in the Bible here, in the book of Nehemiah, a scene that I love. Don't you love kind of night scenes in literature? There is a night scene where Nehemiah, I'm, not, I'm imagining a bit of this, but you know how when a guy gets something on his heart, or a woman, they get something on their heart, and it's like burdening them, and they're thinking about it, it means a lot to them, they can't go to sleep at night. 
Or maybe they want to have just quiet time to contemplate on that, so they get up in the night. Nehemiah gets up in the night, he takes his animal, just he and his animal, and he goes out and he goes along the walls, in this gate, out that gate, along the walls. His heart is broken again as he lays his eyes on the broken down walls and on the burned gates. And you can just... As you read it, you can feel his spirit just boiling with plans. Chapter 2, verse 12, I arose in the night, and I, uh, I had and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well to the refuse gate and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. And I went to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and I entered the valley gate and so returned. I've noticed this about people who are leaders. People who are leaders don't just talk about stuff. They don't just pray about things. They act on things. They go, I'm going to do something about that. I, they wait for a sense that they have permission from the Lord, but they do things. They take action. They make things happen by God's grace. Nehemiah was that kind of a guy. Qualities of a godly leader, man or woman, a godly leader is a person who prays. If you're a dad, you're a mom, you're a leader, you pray. If you're a leader, you should act on things, take action on things. A godly leader resists opposition. Let me just say it this way. A godly leader is always going to have opposition. That's just how it works. There's always going to be opposition within, without. You, you are your own worst enemy sometimes. There are other people who are going to misunderstand you. Why do you think it was that Nehemiah says, I didn't tell anybody what I had in mind? Because he was a strategist. He had enemies, and he didn't want to give away secrets. So he said, I'm going to keep this to myself, and I'm going to act with some stealth, if you will. A godly leader has opposition, and he resists opposition. This is a guy who kind of rolls over, and he puts his feet up like a whipped puppy the first time somebody disagrees with what he has to say. He recognizes there's a job to be done here. God's called me to do it. And if they're going to tangle with me, they're going to tangle because I'm a leader, and God's called me to do it. He resists opposition. You see this opposition very clearly in chapter 4. It's repeated opposition, and the people are named, and he calls them out by name. A godly leader also cares. When he comes back to Jerusalem, one of the things that he sees is that people are taking advantage of one another. And this in a situation when you have uh, distress, like you see all around the world tonight, like in Japan or in Libya tonight, where people are in amazing distress. And all throughout the Middle East, people are in distress. In many places in our own nation, and not far from this building, there are people who are in distress. Well, wherever you have people that are disadvantaged or they're in distress, there are people that are there who are taking advantage of them. And they're taking advantage of their poverty. Or they're taking advantage of their vulnerability. You need money? Okay. You need money desperately? All right. I'll loan it to you, but it's going to cost you. You ever notice that? People who don't need to borrow money can borrow money at a really low rate of interest. But people, people who really need to borrow money are going to pay a high rate of interest. Well, that's real Christian, isn't it? I understand you. So, well, wait a minute, Pastor. That's because they're a big risk, and they're not likely to pay it back. That's why. Like, okay. But in this case, Nehemiah sees that there's usury involved. In other words, people are taking advantage of one another. And he says to the, he basically calls a halt to this. He says, I'm telling you, you're going to stop doing that. And I want you to make promises that you're going to stop doing that. Say that you promise to me. 
And then to the people that won't promise, he says, don't make me come after you and make you do this. This is kind of like a paraphrase, but essentially that's what he's saying in chapter 5. You see that as you, as you read it, he says, restore, verse 11, restore now to them even this day their lands and their vineyards and their olive groves and their houses and also a hundredth of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment. He's using an illustration now. I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. You mess with me, God's coming after you, he says. You do what you're supposed to do. He's a man. He's a leader. He's he's a principled guy. God raise up people like that. Four qualities. Here's some more. The fifth one, a godly leader turns people towards God's word. We mentioned this already. He arranged a time where they would have Ezra read the word of God. They build a platform. They call everybody in, men, women, and children of understanding age, and they read the word of God, and it, I like this part, is a long service. It is a long service. I know know what you're thinking. You're like, Pastor, did they do that every Sunday morning? No, it was unusual. They had a long service, and they read the law of God, and the people responded to the law of God. You see this beautifully. They responded in chapter 8, verses 9 through 12 with conviction. They were so under conviction that they were going to fast, and they were going to mourn, and they were going to weep. And then then Nehemiah does something kind of neat. This is kind of one of those interesting parts of the Bible where he says, right now is not the time for you to fast and for, for you to mourn and for you to weep. I want you to have a big feast and a celebration because we have restored the word of God. So he commands them to rejoice. And this is where the place in chapter 8 where he says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Somebody told me this about you, church, a few weeks ago. They were visitors to our church, and they said it's been a long time since we've been to a place where there was so much joy in one place. And again this morning, somebody who's been away for a while came back, looked at me with a very serious expression. It was Steve Gable there. Looked at me with a very serious expression. He says, Pastor, you need to understand what's going on here. This church is very special. I believe that. And we should be patting ourselves on the back. That's not the point. But when they're God's people have gotten together and they take God's word seriously, then the joy of the Lord is their strength. And when you don't take God's word seriously, and we don't honor God, and you don't honor his word, it is going to sap you of your joy. Am I right? You have enough experience to know. It just sucks the life out of you, and it sucks the joy out of you. And that's why, you know, when you come to communion, you, you, you kind of like have mixed feelings, don't you? You're sober, and you're thoughtful, and you're serious, but you're happy, and you're joyful, and you're celebrating. That's why sometimes we say, we celebrate communion, but you look at us, it's like we're celebrating because we're like so serious. It should be that way. And by the way, you know, folly and partying and stuff like that, the world wants to go straight to the party. They, want, they don't want to stop at the morning place first. They just want to go straight to the party. And then what happens? They have a brief party and then a lot of weeping. For us that know the Lord, you go to your knees and you go to the Word of God and you get yourself broken by the Word of God and then you go to the party and then it's real joy. Then you have real depth of joy that kind of flows out of you, as Jesus said, So this leader, Nehemiah, a godly leader, turns people to God's word. A godly leader prays, a godly leader acts, a godly leader resists opposition, a godly leader cares, a godly leader turns people to God's word. Then they have conviction, and then they have celebration, and then they have repentance, and then they have renewal of covenant, where they're literally willing to bind themselves to covenants with God and with one another. And a godly leader confesses his sin. 
He doesn't pretend he hasn't sinned. And you see this clearly with Nehemiah repeatedly. He confesses his sin. He confesses the sin of his forefathers. I'm just telling you as a dad or as a mom, as a leader in any way, the tendency, you know, is going to be not to admit you've done anything wrong. And that's not good leadership. Good leadership is the one who's the first one to the altar. The leaders are the ones that are the first ones to the altar. The leaders are the ones who say, I'm sorry, first. The leaders are the ones who have a real tender conscience when they offend or when they hurt. They live with a tender conscience to God. Nehemiah was this man. He was not afraid to weep. He was a man's man that could cry. And he could fast and he could pray. Beautiful. We could just go on and on about that. Our church has a church covenant. For years and years, churches like ours have had a covenant and it's worded almost exactly the same. It's a beautiful piece of literature based on the scriptures. And, and, uh, and the covenant's a binding thing, church. Folks that join our church say we're in covenant together. It's not just a light kind of a thing that we do. We, this is something we need to remind ourselves of. And when we go to the communion table, often churches will, we don't always do this, but often churches over the years will have communion and they'll read that church covenant as a reminder, hey, we don't neglect secret devotions. We don't neglect family devotions. We're not given to drink. That's not what we do. We're given to God, and we're given to missions, and we don't backbite. This is what, these are the promises that we make to one another. I think that's a good thing. We're sticking with that. And I would just challenge you as a pastor, and the other pastors are with me on this. We agree. It's a beautiful covenant that we have. We're going to challenge people to not to say in our day, we're just a loose Amalgamate, uh, amalgam of people that aren't really devoted to each other. No, we are devoted to each other. We are devoted to Jesus Christ, and we are not afraid to say it. We tremble before God when we make these promises, but we do make promises. They did it in the Old Testament, and they've done it for years. I think it's appropriate to do it now. I mean, what would happen if you fell in love with a beautiful girl, and you just told her, you know, you just spilled out your heart, how much you loved her, and you gave her a big diamond, and you said, I want to be with you forever, and I want you to be my wife, but I just don't want to have one of those wedding ceremonies where I make a big promise in front of a bunch of people. Well, well she should send you packing, right? She should send you packing. So if you want to make a vow covenant in front of other people before God to win my hand, you don't deserve me. Well, I've made my point. And then, number seven, godly leader inspires people to make specific commitments. So you see this in chapter 10. A bunch of things. I, I told them to promise this and vow that. God leaders do that. They inspire people to make voluntary binding commitments. I've noticed this over my lifetime. Godly leaders are able to s- inspire people to say, I'm devoted to this cause. I will be a part of that. God give us that kind of gravitas as leaders that, that we, can in ch- we can charge our children. And the children would say, yes, Dad. I'm with you on this. Your God is my God. I'm going to serve your God. That we would be able to stir up other people to say, I'm with you on this. We're going to charge Sam on hill together. And Nehemiah had that gift from the Lord. And then a godly leader persists. He doesn't quit. He, he keeps on doing courage, action, manliness, conviction, authority. He continues to act with courage. He continues to do, and you see this over and over in, in chapter 13. And I, wanna, I want you to see this before we go home tonight. Just, uh, take your Bibles and look at chapter 13, because I think it gives you a little bit of, of the, the, the seriousness of this matter. In chapter 13, now, you understand in the story, Nehemiah then, he comes, he gets the wall built, he begins the reforms, but he goes back because he has a position of responsibility. 
And while he's gone, things kind of go downhill. He hears about it. He comes back to kind of clean house. And in chapter 13, you see a number of things that have happened while he was gone. For instance, the temple was defiled by a guy named Tobiah, who moves into the temple himself, and he lives in a place where this is supposed to be holy unto the Lord. Spiritual leaders have abandoned their post. Chapter 13, verse 10. Sabbath was violated. Of all the things they just got back from Babylonian captivity, because they violated the Sabbath, and what do they do? They violate the Sabbath. Dumb. And then, um, I'm glad we don't repeat our mistakes like that. Amen? And, and then there was intermarriage with unbelievers. They were giving their sons and daughters to unbelievers for marriage. And, and his response was interesting. And then the priesthood was defiled. These, all these things would happen. Before we go home tonight, I just want you to notice what he did. And I think it's kind of instructive. And I, hopefully it kind of like brings the manliness out of some of you guys, you know. Stirs the manliness up and it's like, you know, I would serve God like that. I hope that, that's what it does. Notice this, chapter 13 and verse 8. When the temple was defiled by Tobiah and he'd moved his stuff in, he says in verse 8, It grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. That'd make a good movie when he just goes in and he literally cleans house. What is your stuff doing in God's house? Get it out of here. And he personally throws the stuff out. Get out of here. You don't belong here. It's interesting. I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with a grain offering and the frankincense. He also had realized that the leaders had abandoned their post. Look what he says, verse 11. So I contended with the rulers. He's a real positive thinker, right? He didn't want to say anything negative, did he? I'm being facetious. He continually contends with the leaders. That's not right. Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together, and I set them in their place. Verse 11. And all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil into the storehouse. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouse people. And then you have there um, that the Sabbath was violated in chapter 13, verses uh, 15 and 16. In the middle of this, Nehemiah interrupts it. He's going to say it again toward the end. And he's doing all this stuff. And he interrupts it and he says, remember me, God. Remember me. Remember what's happened here. Remember, I've been, I've been faithful to you. Remember me, oh my God. Verse 14. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his services. He just stops in the middle of this and goes, God, you see what I'm doing. I, I'm trying to be faithful to you. Don't, don't forget me. That, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? He says it again at the very end. That's the way the book ends. Remember me, oh my God, for good. And does he get remembered? Well, of course, though, we're talking about him tonight. He got remembered. And so here, here in verse, um, look at what he does in verse uh, 15. I warned them about the day which they were selling provisions. Verse 17, I contended with the nobles of Judah. Verse 18, did not our God bring all this disaster upon us in this city? Don't you remember what, what's going on? Verse 19, I commanded the gates to be shut. This is, they were violating the Sabbath, and he says, I'm saying no more. I'm going to shut the gates. The night before the Sabbath, nobody's going in and out. So he takes executive action. He doesn't just like sit around shaking it, scratch his head going, somebody really ought to, it's not a feminine thing, you know. Somebody ought to really do something about this. He just steps up and he goes, I'm going to lock the gates. And I like kind of what he does here. I posted some servants at the gates so no burdens could be brought in on the Sabbath. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. So he's got, you understand what's going on? He's locked it down. He says, you are not going in. And, you're not, and I got some people there that are saying, you are not going to go in and out. And then they camped out nearby. And Nehemiah's going, what are you guys doing? He basically says, don't make me come there. <laughs> That's what he says there. So I warned them and said to them, why do you spend all night by the wall? If you do that again, I will lay my hands on you. 
Is there anybody else here likes this kind of stuff besides me? This is like, do you have a flannel graph of this anywhere? Are you going to make me lay my hands on you? This guy was serious. I kind of like that. And then verse 22, I command the Levites they should cleanse themselves. Verse 25, I contended with them. This is the part here you understand where they had given, they'd done a very serious thing. They had taken foreign wives for their sons, pagan wives. They were allowing intermarriage with unbelievers. And, and he was holding the parents responsible for their involvement. This is, one of the, this is one of the reasons why I believe in some form of dad and mom should be involved in the courtship here somewhere. Because it's all throughout the Bible. You see it here. And, and he says to them, because they had done this, and they'd been warned by Ezra before, and remember Ezra had put on ashes and he had pulled his beard and so forth. And I like this part because Nehemiah takes it a step further. I contended with them and I cursed them and I struck some of them and I pulled out their hair and I made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters and wives to their sons or take their daughters or sons. Am I, am I going to have to pull your beard out? You promised God you will not do this anymore. I don't know how this applies to the local church. I don't. I really don't. I'm thinking about it. Maybe we'll have our pastoral staff meeting and we'll just kind of figure it out. Maybe we'll work out, you know, get ourselves in good condition in case anybody messes up, you know. I, I, do, I do know how this applies to the local church. I'm just trying to be funny here. But this is what they did. This is a serious matter. And these women were God's men. They were taken very seriously. I drove them from me. I cleansed everything that was pagan. They were leaders. Somebody has said that a... A man, like a father or a dad or a pastor or a deacon, a leader in a, in a school setting or in a factory job, you have your own business, you're a leader, that God has made a man to be a lord of the earth, to have an area of dominion. And every young man has an area of dominion of his life. That's why we are continually telling our boys to keep their rooms clean, because we're like, if you can't clean your room, how are you going to take hold of other things and take hold of that? You know, you need to take care of your car. You need to clean your room. You need to pay your bills because God will give you a bigger jurisdiction. And then you will take care of that. That's important. So a man is a Lord of the earth. He has dominion. God says to Adam, go to the garden. I'm going to give you a chunk of that. You take care of it. I'm going to be watching and see how you do. And then he says, I want you to make things grow. This is re- repetitive. I've said this before, but I like it. So I'm going to say it again. He says, in there, I want you to make things grow. So a man is a Lord of the earth and he's a husbandman. He has a jurisdiction, and then in his jurisdiction, he's to make life flourish in that jurisdiction. He's to bring life and not death to that jurisdiction. This is a beautiful thing. He also knows that there's going to be the evil one who's going to come in, and sin's going to come in. And so he's a savior. He says, Genesis chapter 1, he's the Lord of the earth. Genesis chapter 2, he's a husbandman. Genesis chapter 3, he's a savior. He's dangerous to the enemy. The evil one comes in, and he says, not in my house. I recognize when evil comes into my house, and evil is not welcome in my house. I'm not going to allow evil in my heart in my head or in my house or on my television. I'm not going to let it slip in the front door or the back door. There's a man who lives here, and I'm going to work on keeping evil out of the hearts of the people in my house. The devil needs to know there's a man in every house who's a godly man, who's a man's man, who's trying to make life flourish in his dominion. So he is a savior. And then he's a sage. You see this in the book of Proverbs. A man is to grow in wisdom and to be able to give wisdom to people. And he is the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, A man goes before the Lord, the glory of God. He's in the presence of God. He comes out of the presence of God with evidence that he's been in the presence of God. And he is to have that kind of intimacy with the Lord. 
that there is a radiance about his spirit that when he comes out, this is how it works. The man comes out regularly into the presence of the Lord and he walks with the Lord. He has the, the reflection of God's character on him. He then goes out and he gives wisdom to his world. And then he is a danger to the enemy. And then he is able to make life flourish in his dominion. And then he has a bigger dominion. And you see this in Nehemiah. Do you see it in your own life? What a powerful thing that can be. This is what you we're not seeing with people who have devoted themselves to avoiding responsibility or playing a lot of video games or just not really doing anything that really matters in the world. It's no put down, you know, a constant obsession with things that are empty is the devil's way for a young man. But God wants a young man to be inspired to do something great and young women to be inspired to do things that are, that are great, that are worthy I don't want to overuse it, but I was inspired by reading two or three biographies of a guy named Jerry Falwell who, who was raised in a home of an alcoholic and he was lost. And when he got saved, he went back to his hometown and his heart was broken for his hometown. He took his Suburban, his truck, up on a hill on a mountain. I think they called it Chandler's Mountain where he grew up. And he would look out over that city and he would pray and he would work he, this guy, you may or may not agree with Jerry Fowler, like him or whatever, but Jerry Fowler was a man of prayer, and he went to work in that town. He literally, every day, he went door. He hadn't, hadn't had any church. He's going to start a church. He gets an old Donald Duck bottling company building. He goes on the radio in the morning. He goes calling door to door every day, five days a week. He doesn't quit until he's made 100 calls door to door. On Saturday, he goes back to visit the people that were the likely candidates when he was calling through the week, and he invites them to church. On the first anniversary of the church, they had 800 in attendance. You probably know now there's a college, a university on that mountain, and Jerry Falwell is with the Lord. But when I read stories like that, it's kind of like modern-day Nehemiah-type people who have a vision for something. And they have a passion for something. They have a burden for something. And they grieve over that. And their hearts are stirred about that. And they pray. And they work. Took his wife out to dinner one night. Favorite restaurant. Was talking with her. He said to her, we've had a wonderful life, haven't we? I hope you're happy. She says, I'm happy. They had their favorite meal. The waitress that was waiting on them that night. He said to this young woman, he said, you know, what do you do with your life? She says, I go to a local community college. He says, why don't you go to my college? She said, I can't afford your college. She comes back to the table. He says, I'm going to give you a four-year full ride to Liberty University. So I want you to switch colleges now. You can afford it. They had a nice meal that night. He went to work in the morning and died. First thing his wife, Maisel, did was she called the people at the college and said, Jerry made a promise last night to a girl at a restaurant. See to it that she gets her scholarship you like stories like that. I love stories like that. When he, when he died, they took him in an uh, ambulance. They, took him, they rushed him to the hospital. They weren't sure he was dead. So they rushed him to the hospital. And when they took him to the hospital there, this guy passed the church, I don't know what it is, 10, 15,000 people. It's huge. When they get him to the hospital, they say that the, the halls of the hospital were lined with people grieving over Jerry Falwell's death. And the reason that they were lined is because those people had seen him at the hospital every day. Because even though he ran this college and he pastored this church, he still went and saw his people in the hospital. As a pastor, that's a pretty sobering story to read. But it stirs my heart to think about what God can do. Hey, very few of us are going to live on a scale 
like Jerry Falwell lived. God used him in a remarkable and unusual way. Very few of us will live on that scale. But in whatever scale God has called us to, let's have those qualities. Let's ask God to give us those qualities of leadership. Let's ask God to stir up in us a vision for something great. Let's ask God to make of us a person of action, a person that really believes something, a person that has some leadership. Let's do something for God. Let's pray and go home. Father, thank you tonight for this Lord's Day and the boys that followed you in baptism there earlier tonight. I pray, Lord, that your hand would be on each of these precious boys. I pray, Lord, that you'd use them, make them like, like Nehemiah. I pray, Lord, tonight for little Billy and for Ethan. And thank you for them. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up in them great exploits for God and that they would live for you. Thank you for Connor. Pray, Lord, that you'd use him, that you keep him close to your heart all the days of his life, and that, Lord, that he would, would have a special, a special use in your kingdom, that he would be a man in a time when there are few men, that he would be a leader. I thank you for Anthony. I pray, Lord, that you would take his special uh, personality, his special uh, gifts that you've given to him, and that you'd use him in your kingdom and for your sake. And we're grateful for little Andrew, young Andrew. And, Lord, we can already see the leadership developing in his heart and his sincere uh, faith, his sincere spirit. And I pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon him too and that you bless him and that you'd use him. And for all the others that have gathered here tonight, I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.